we're going to turn from the question of how did it happen to what happens after you extend the rights of marriage to same-sex couples um, with researchers on our next panel. There's some introductions that are just a lot of fun to do, and this is going to be one of them. Um, back at the same time that Axel and Igel were entering their domestic partnership, I was in college coming out and looking for a job. Um, and I wanted to be a lawyer in the gay rights movement, and there just wasn't a lot of choice at that time. Um, you could go to the ACLU Lesbian and Gay Rights Project and work for Bill Rubenstein, or you could go to Lambda Legal Defense and work for Evan Wolfson. And many people in the movement often ask, what is the difference between Bill and Evan? <laughs> They're both from Pittsburgh. They went to the same high school, the same college, and the same law school. But I quickly found out the difference when I applied to first with Bill, and then went to an interview with Evan, and Bill didn't hire me, and Evan did. <laughs> Bill has since corrected that several times over. Um, but I can tell you, and that was 17 years ago, that <laughs> Evan Wolfson, the research that he gave me at that time, was looking at constitutional rights in various states around the country to build challenges to lead to lawsuits to fight for the right to marriage. He has fought tirelessly over a couple of decades um, to make the freedom to marry a reality in this country and to continue to make that reality. So while Time Magazine may consider him one of the most influential people out there, I'd like to consider him one of the most influential people in my life. So I introduce Evan Wilson. Thank you. Thank you. Well, now that you know the only difference between me and Bill Rubenstein, <laughs> thank you very much, Brad. You've come a long way. <laughs> well, I get to have the opportunity today to, in this panel, to really not have to say very much because we have two very distinguished, extraordinary scholars, researchers, and activists who are going to be presenting to you, and all I have to do is moderate. They have agreed to not have me read their bios to you, so I won't. I will just say that these truly are two friends of mine, two people I very much respect. They are academics, they are scholars, they are researchers who have taken those skills and, and prodigious bodies of work, both of them, and not just left them in that arena, but taken them into the world of action and activism and advocacy to actually go out there and make a difference in the world. And the Williams Institute did a great job in bringing them here today. Uh, although I said I would not read their whole bios, I do want to just mention one book of each of theirs because I know that authors like to have their books acknowledged, and these are both truly excellent resources for us to be aware of. So we have Lee Badgett, who's here with the Williams Institute, and her book, Money, Myths, and Change, The Economic Lives of Lesbians and Gay Men, has been widely cited and a very useful tool in rebutting one of the right-wing's uh, main pieces of propaganda that somehow gays are this privileged, unique, isolated group of people who hover above and therefore need no legal protection. And among Bill's many books and articles is his most recent one in which he was a co-author with Darren Spidal of Gay Marriage for Better or for Worse, which also tackled some of the, some of the propaganda put forward by the right wing making ridiculous claims about the experience of Europe and others with regard to ending marriage discrimination and according uh, same-sex couples legal protection, showing how, in fact, countries and jurisdictions that have done that have actually had families helped and no one hurt. So these are two great scholars, 
to terrific people, to wonderful activists and advocates, and they're going to talk today about what is the knowledge, what is the state of knowledge out there, and what can we learn from it, and how can we use it. So did we decide who's going to go first? Uh, it is a great privilege to be here. I appreciate the Williams Institute, uh, Evan, and particularly my old friend, Lee Badgett. Uh, I'm going to focus on Scandinavia, and I think Lee's going to focus on the Netherlands, making it very appropriate. Now, uh, for many uh, uh, centuries in Western and Eastern culture, uh, same-sex unions have been legally recognized uh, either as marriages or as unions, but they have generally not been recognized in the modern West, the countries of North America and Europe. The first major recognition of same-sex unions, not completely equal, but the first major recognition was in Denmark in 1989. Uh, the Danish Registered Partnership Acts were followed by the other Scandinavian countries in the 1990s until uh, Finland in 2002. And what my book with Darren Spadali does, and we do have a website, www.gaymarriagebook.com, very easy to remember, uh, what we do is we focus on the Scandinavian, particularly the Danish evidence, and their experience with registered partnerships. And we try to tie that experience uh, with the U.S. debate and what we might learn in the spirit of the Williams Conference today. Uh, after an intellectual history of the same-sex marriage movement in this country, which we can talk about in Q&A, we do three things in the book. Thing number one is that we give the background and the history as well as the practical experience of the registered partnership laws in Scandinavia, particularly in Denmark, where we interviewed several couples as well as compiling statistics. Secondly, we ask about and interrogate the bearing of the Scandinavian experience, 17 years now in Denmark, on the U.S. opposition to same-sex marriage, particularly arguments forwarded by Yale professor Robert Bork and other eminent intellectuals. Uh, and then three, we make some predictions about the future. Now, there are a lot of interesting findings in the book about the patterns of registered partnerships in Scandinavia. We'll use Denmark as our exemplar, but most of what I say is going to apply to the other Scandinavian countries as well. Uh, the first point, and it's in many ways a discouraging one, uh, is that the number of registered partners remains very modest in all of these countries. Uh, it's a little bit over 2,600 existing registered partnerships now in Denmark. Uh, and though you don't know exactly what percentage of the Danish population is gay or lesbian, uh, by uh, a fairly reasonable estimate, probably less than 1% of lesbian and gay Danes have taken advantage of the registered partnership law. But as you see from the chart, uh, the numbers have gone up each year. These are the cumulative numbers netting out the divorces. Uh, so we still don't know where this is going to plateau. We still don't know exactly where this is going. Uh, now, what about the people who are registering in Denmark and these other countries? Can we make some generalizations about them? We can actually make a lot of generalizations about them that carry on through all the countries. Uh, the first and most important one is they're going to be urban dwellers. Uh, most of the Danish registered partners are in Copenhagen. Most of the Swedish ones are in Stockholm, etc., etc. Uh, the rural areas and small towns are greatly underrepresented in all these countries. Uh, the major urban areas are greatly overrepresented. We can make some generalizations about their occupations, and I'm afraid, Lee, <laughs> that, that this plays into the hands of Justice Scalia. Now, this is not a random sample. Uh, but as a matter of fact, most of the people who do register in Denmark are either professional or white-collar types. And we have another diagram in our book which gives the number of Danes that fit in these categories. And it's about 38% of uh, the total number of Danes and more than 50% are either executives, managers, or professionals. So the ones who actually take advantage of this institution tend to be uh, middle class or even upper middle class. Uh, they also tend to be male. Now, here I give you the Swedish figures, but the Danish figures are very similar. 
Uh, in all of these countries, uh, the initial year of registration is obviously the biggest number. There's a huge pent-up demand. And in all the countries we surveyed, except for Iceland, uh, by a large margin, there are many more gay couples registering than female couples. Though, as you notice in Sweden, and this is characteristic of all the countries, that the numbers have equalized out in the new millennium. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, very few of the couples thus far are raising children. Again, there's a slope here. In Denmark, uh, which had a 1989 law, very few of the couples early on were raising children, and the number of couples raising children uh, has uh, gone up very significantly in each five-year interval. So that now, more than 15% of the couples are raising children, and there's every reason to believe that that percentage is going to continue to increase. Now, that gives you a snapshot, and uh, you can read our book or go to the website, frankly, for free, and read about some of the couples that we interviewed and uh, some of their lives. Now, I think that's instructive just per se. Uh, another way that this might be instructive is how does this fit into the arguments about same-sex marriage in the United States? Uh, as many as you know, the arguments in favor of same-sex marriage have basically been equality arguments from the very beginning. The arguments against same-sex marriage have been highly mobile. They've started out with these definitional arguments such as you talked about. It simply cannot be. And then Denmark and these other countries have falsified that argument. But the opponents have been in no way deterred uh, in opposing same-sex marriage simply because some of their arguments go away. And the arguments for the last 10 years from about 1996 to 2006 have primarily been what you call the defensive marriage argument. And that is that marriage is an institution which benefits everybody, particularly children, has long been in decline in the United States, in the Netherlands, in Denmark, and other countries. And the arguments by opponents of same-sex marriage, which include people like President Clinton, as well as Reverend Falwell, a large swath of the American political spectrum, uh, the argument uh, by these opponents of same-sex marriage is that the decline of marriage will become more precipitous, will become much worse, if we adopt same-sex marriage, which would be a radical change in the definition of marriage. And indeed, in the debates over the Federal Marriage Protection Amendment in 2004, the leading opponents of same-sex marriage, Judge Bork, Senator Santorum, Representative DeLay, and others, explicitly made a Scandinavian twist on the same-sex marriage argument, the defensive marriage argument. And their argument was, not only is this true theoretically, but it's actually true practically, that Scandinavia has adopted same-sex marriage and it has destroyed marriage in Scandinavia. So what Darren Spadale and I do is we ask, let's look at the evidence. Uh, the evidence in Denmark and most of the other countries has been since 1970 or thereabouts, the marriage rates in those countries have steadily declined. The divorce rates have steadily increased and the rates of children born outside of marriage have increased in Denmark fourfold, from 11% in 1971 to 44% uh, in 1989. Now, if Judge Bork et al. were correct that the recognition of same-sex unions, and in Denmark, uh, registered partnerships are treated as marriages uh, verbally and uh, by straight as well as uh, gay Danes, you would expect to see the decline of marriage, the, the bottom to drop out entirely. Not just a continued decline, but a steeper decline. You would expect to see divorce races, uh, rates start soaring, and you would expect to see non-marital children rates soar even faster than they have. Now, as you can see from this data, remember 1989 is the uh, date in which the statute was adopted. Uh, you can see from the data that marriage rates don't go down. Marriage rates, in fact, go up. Is that caused by registered partnership? Not necessarily. But it certainly is a big hit to the argument that same-sex marriage is going to be fatal to the institution of marriage. You might also notice that the divorce rates bop around a bit uh, and uh, uh, end up about where they were before. Uh, similar but messier evidence from Norway and Sweden. 
Now, what about the non-marital birth rate? Look at Denmark. Denmark up fourfold in a period of less than a generation. Same-sex marriage, has that destroyed the non-marital birth rate? Of course it has not. The non-marital birth rate has basically plateaued since 1989, and it's even gone down modestly in the new millennium. In other words, the defensive marriage argument, and particularly the Scandinavian twist, are a lavender herring. <laughs> now, what other lessons might we learn from the Scandinavian experience? Well, there are a number of lessons uh, that we might want to learn. Well, one is that gay marriage doesn't harm the institution. It's a nonsense argument. Uh, a second lesson that we might want to learn uh, is that state recognition of same-sex unions is going to be uneven. Uh, that's not on the list there. It's going to be uneven. And part of what we do in the book uh, is we look at various parts of the United States, analogize to Scandinavia and to Europe, and argue uh, that uh, there are certain jurisdictions, mainly in the Northeast and the Pacific Coast, where we ought to be successful in the foreseeable future, either in getting marriage or civil unions or the equivalent. There are other segments of our society, such as the Deep South and the Mormon West, where we will not be successful, and that this struggle is really going to be regionalizing for the foreseeable future. Moreover, we hypothesize that much of the struggle is going to be in the legislature. Note in Scandinavia, uh, same-sex marriage and registered partnerships did not come through judicial, judicial decisions. They came through the parliament, exactly as in the Netherlands. And this, it seems to me, is going to be the situs of struggle in the United States. Uh, that whatever we end up getting uh, is going to be mainly through the legislative process. Now, does that mean the courts are irrelevant? Of course not. Does that mean the courts are unimportant? Of course not. Uh, because even if courts cannot deliver us same-sex marriage or even civil unions, what courts can do, and they have done this in a number of jurisdictions, is they can reverse the burden of inertia. This is exactly what they've done in Massachusetts, where I think same-sex marriage will probably stick. So it is still very important to do litigation, such as the important litigation that's being done here uh, in California. And then there's the fi final and most dramatic finding. And that is and, uh, that same-sex marriage and all of these institutions that we've seen in the Netherlands and in Europe, as well as the United States, are part of a larger shift in family law in the Western society. And that is, when I was growing up, when Evan was growing up, much later, uh, uh, it was all or nothing. Uh, you either had no rights and benefits or you got married where you got a gajillion of them. Uh, what we have seen for straight couples, as well as increasingly for lesbian and gay couples, is that couples in the West are moving toward a menu approach, where couples will have a choice, and increasingly the same choices are going to be offered to lesbian and gay couples as are offered to straight couples. Uh, the choices at the top reflecting uh, very little necessary commitment, but also only a few benefits and obligations. The choice at the bottom, which is covenant marriage, uh, offering lots of benefits and a little bit more obligation than marriage offers in most jurisdictions. And it seems to me that's the reality. Uh, the reality of, it seems to me, family law, the same-sex marriage issue, totalizes public attention, which is fine but delusional. Because the fundamental shift that's going on in Western family law, for better or for worse, if you're pro-choice, this looks good. And you can even edit your menu you know, through contract. If you're pro-marriage, this doesn't look so good because this means that marriage is being diluted with these other competitors. And the ultimate irony with which I shall end is that the ultimate villains in the decline of marriage, to the extent law has anything to do with it, which it doesn't, are the traditionalists. 
because the traditionalists, by avidly opposing same-sex marriage, are forcing the political process in France, in Germany, in Italy, uh, in Vermont, in New Jersey, in California, in Hawaii, in Vermont, all over the country, all over the world, are forcing the political process to create new institutions which often are offered to different sex as well as same-sex couples, i.e. creating new competitors for marriage for different sex as well as same-sex couples. And as in France, the different sex couples are most of the pax civil. In the Netherlands, I think they're most of the registered partners, etc. These are very popular with different sex couples who are flocking away to marriage partly for that reason. So I close with that irony and turn it over to my esteemed colleague, Professor Batchett. going to talk about the book yet to come. Evan talked about the book in the past. I actually have a present book that I'll mention in a few minutes, and this is this is the book yet to come, so it's great to have a chance to talk to you about this with, uh, with this esteemed panel today. And like Bill, I see Europe as a social laboratory. I spent a, a lovely year in the Netherlands a few years back and um, realized that the 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 events that the Netherlands had lived through and that the Scandinavian countries had lived through and other countries in Europe had lived through helped us get some perspective on some of the key questions that were that have been uh, dividing people in the United States uh, around this issue of same-sex marriage. These are the questions uh, that I think uh, uh, that I want to speak to and speak to in the book. Will gay people change marriage? Will marriage change gay people? Are we moving too fast in the United States? That's a big concern. And do we need to start with some kind of alternative to marriage? So you can get a little bit of a sense that some of the things that I talk about and that Bill and Darren have talked about in their book uh, will are, are, are complementary. We look at them somewhat differently, I think, but, uh, but for the most part, they, they fit together fairly nicely. While I was in the Netherlands, I talked with, I formally interviewed uh, same-sex couples about their decisions to marry or register as partners or not. It's an interesting and very different case from Denmark and the other countries because you have a lot of options in the Netherlands. Um, as you've heard uh, about already, I'll try not to uh, repeat too much. I, I spent a year interviewing people to find out things that you, you learned in, in the course of Boris Dietrich's speech in a few minutes. So. <laughs> Um, and I also did a lot of comparative work looking at uh, the U.S. and comparing it to the Netherlands and other countries. Um, and um, uh, we'll tell you a little bit about that. So let's start just with the first question. This is just going to be a very quick overview. Will gay people change marriage? We have our straw Stanley that we've been kicking around. Stanley Kurtz is the most famous person in the U.S. to um, promote uh, this idea that gay people will irreparably and have irreparably harmed marriage in the Netherlands and in Scandinavian countries. And I'm not going to go over this argument because I think Bill and I both have been through many rounds with him and um, um, I think Bill kind of adequately captured the idea that all of the things that he claims are bad, that that all the bad things that he claims happened as a result of same-sex marriage or registered partnership had really already happened um, in those countries. So there's there's not a lot more to say about that, although I think people do find that Looking at this question about heterosexual behavior um, helps to to think about whether or not gay people will change marriage. Uh, But what I found was it was really important to separate out thinking about marrying, to marry as a verb, compared to marriage as a noun and understanding what's been going on. Um, 
it's hard for most of us to wrap our heads around the idea that letting a few more people get married will somehow change the incentives that straight people face to marry or change the way that that they uh, the, the choices that they will actually make. I actually am not really convinced that behavior is the only way to measure it, though, because I think the cultural idea of marriage shapes what options people are choosing from, what they look like, what they think about uh, these particular options. It's not just incentives that matter, and that's a very profound thing for an economist to say. Um, so, so I'm trying to take this argument very seriously and to, to think about ways that this might actually happen. But it's very hard to find uh, ways that that uh, the idea of marriage has changed in a damaging way. But to go back to the behavior for a second, when I interview couples about why they married, it was quite clear they marry for the same reasons that heterosexual couples do. They want to express their commitment to one another. They want to do it to each other, and they want to do it in public in front of their family and friends. And it has a great deal of value to them to be able to do that. They're doing it for romantic reasons. They're doing it for practical reasons. These are all things that you hear, uh, that you see in studies of heterosexual couples when you ask them why they get married or why they don't get married. Now, because they have these choices, this expanded menu of options in the Netherlands compared to most other countries, it's another referendum of sorts about what... um, uh, which one of those is on top of the hierarchy. And it is quite clear in the Netherlands that marriage is on top, just as it is for heterosexual couples. Heterosexual couples in the Netherlands who formalize their relationship choose marriage. Very few choose registered partnerships. It's a little more mixed in terms of the same-sex couples. I can put some of those numbers in perspective that Boris Dietrich mentioned. Um, one estimate is that about 15% of same-sex couples in the Netherlands have married, and another 10% have registered as partners. I think if, if couples could have married for longer, instead of having just the registered partnership option, it's pretty clear that, uh, that there would be many more marriages than there are registered partnerships. But it, it actually it costs a lot of money to get married in the Netherlands. I was kind of surprised. Hundreds of euros. And, uh, and if you want to convert your registered partnership to a marriage, you have to go to a lawyer and spend more money. And so the, a lot of couples told me, you know, we'd like to really be married, but we think of ourselves as married even though we're just registered as partners. Um, we don't want to spend the money. Um, and on Monday morning, it's free. This is an interesting thing. You see, Dutch frugality. At least half of the couples I talked to who had married had gone at 9 a.m. on Monday morning because it was free. <laughs> so, learn all sorts of interesting things. So, what about this idea of uh, marriage as a noun, as, a, as an idea, as a, as a cultural concept? So the numbers aren't big. And again, you might say, well, how the heck could 1,200 couples a year possibly change the way people think about marriage? But again, I think that's not really the right way to look at it. Marriage is a public act. Lots of people come to weddings. That means that a lot of people are going to see, many more people will see gay couples get married than gay couples themselves will get married. So uh, this cultural leverage does provide some way to think about um, uh, uh, whether or not the idea of marriage will change. And as I said, marriage as a concept, as it currently exists, is recognizable by lesbian, gay, and bisexual people in the Netherlands. They think of marriage in the same way as heterosexuals, as I said. But more importantly, heterosexual people in their friends and friends and family circle 
recognize them as married. In fact, they sometimes act as the marriage police. They will remind people that they are supposed to use terms like husband and wife, not boyfriend or girlfriend or partner. The right term to use for the person you're married to is your spouse, is your, is your husband or wife. They will remind them when it's an anniversary coming up. They send cards, letters, bring cakes, and they remind people who might otherwise be a little bit forgetful, which is a good thing. Um, very helpful. So uh, marriages are recognizable. Heterosexuals, many people pointed out that they had family members who had had some issues around the marriage. Um, but uh, through a process of working them out, uh, sometimes, usually, with the help not so much of the same-sex couple itself, but with the, the friends and family members of the relatives who are having a hard time, they actually came around quite quickly to the idea that this was an appropriate thing to do. And so you now have heterosexual relatives telling their gay and lesbian sons and daughters in the Netherlands that they should get married. When are you going to get married? You've been living together for a long time. So those same kinds of expectations happen. And in fact, the best thing about same-sex marriage from the Dutch parental perspective, I'm told, is that a lot of heterosexual couples don't get married and their parents you know, don't really like that very much and so they are often thrilled when their gay sons and daughters get married. They like having the big party. There are a few differences, though, that you see, and again, they're not very surprising. One is an intense awareness of how political marriage is as an institution. Um, the couples I had spoken to were not active in the movement to, to uh, get the right to marry, but they were, um, they were very aware of the, of the fight that had to be won in order to, to have that right. And they're very conscious of what's going on in the United States. Many were better informed than I was about um, the day-to-day -day happenings in San Francisco, which uh, was going on while, uh, while we were there. Um, and politics and marriage don't go together very well for some, uh, some people on the religious right in particular who would like for us to think of marriage as this eternal institution that's never changed, that has some, some core meanings that, that, are, uh, that are threatened rather than being what we know marriage to be, which is a living, breathing cultural institution. Um, I'll just mention, and maybe we can talk some more about this later, there certainly are, is more feminist suspicion of marriage, especially among lesbian couples. Um, and uh, that is probably one reason why marriage rates are not higher than they are in the Netherlands. Um, but I will say that many feminists were also quite willing to get married, and they used marriage as an opportunity to say one more time, marriage doesn't have to be organized traditionally. Look at us. We're two women getting married. We don't have the traditional division of labor and traditional expectations for being uh, spouses, for being two wives or two husbands. So again, but I, again, it's important to put that into the perspective of what's happened to marriage in the Netherlands as a whole, which is that it's also become degendered, just as it has here in the United States. The legal gendering of marriage has been pretty much stripped away. Marriages uh, of different sex couples don't look as uh, as egalitarian in some ways as do uh, same-sex couples' marriages uh, or relationships, um, but. They have, uh, they have changed quite a bit. Women work more often uh, uh, when they're married. Um, they contribute more to the family income. There are other uh, markers that show that people have expectations of, of equality within marriage, not of some kind of uh, hierarchical relationship. Okay, I got one minute, so here we go. Here's a quick review. Okay, will marriage change gay people? Mostly for the better, that's all I'll say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
There are some concerns, though, about whether or not uh, this would mean the end of gay culture, complete assimilation. Um, and there certainly is a new social acceptance. I think it does raise some challenges for the gay community to think about. At the same time, though, it's important to remember marriage makes gay people more visible. That happened in the Netherlands bill, and Darren talked about that in their book as well. And visibility in and of itself reminds us that the work is not done. Some of the laws have changed, but there's still a lot of uh, cultural residue of homophobia and inequality. My new book, I knew I would get to this eventually, the, the book that's out and available for you, if you're interested in, in purchasing copies of either Bill's book or mine, is, um, is on sexual orientation discrimination, uh, an international perspective. So we look at many different countries, countries where laws are quite good about protecting against discrimination, and yet inequality and, and discrimination are still characteristic of those countries. That's probably about all I have time to talk about. Um, we can talk some about the menu of options and the alternatives to marry, but I'll leave that for the discussion. Thanks. Well, thanks to both of you. I actually have a you know, question or two or five or ten for you, but I'm sure people here do. Before we go to the questions, though, do either of you have any comments that you want to make on either your presentation? Okay. Well, then let me throw out one question at least to get the ball rolling. Both of you now have extensively and exhaustively refuted the anti-gay claims, Stanley Kurtz's and others, which make their way throughout the talking points that somehow there's this body of evidence out there that shows that gay people will harm marriage when, in fact, it's really the opposite, and you've now shown that. And yet the opposition obviously doesn't stop. I know when I'm talking on this subject, I've taken to quoting Ronald Reagan, uh, and no offense, Lee, but Reagan was out there and he said that one definition of an economist is somebody who sees something happen in practice and wonders if it will work in theory. <laughs> and I use that point to suggest that they're making very complicated something that actually will just be fine and that we know from Canada, Massachusetts and so on is working out just fine. But given this reality that the opposition is going to be out there, as you're thinking about this and moving forward, what do you think are the next big, powerful arguments that the opponents are going to be throwing at us, that are going to have some traction, and what are the best ways we can respond to them, anticipate them, and refute them? Well, I think they've already gone there. We can see this after the publication of our book. Uh, the Scandinavian argument for the Bork side has vanished pretty much in the literature, although Kurtz still publishes things. I think it's gone to the children, Evan. Uh, this is what in the United States unifies the adoption issue and the marriage issue. And the, the argument is not going to be the sexual predator argument. The traditional argument about lesbians and gays and children is the vampire lesbian uh, or the sexually predatory. This is literally true. I mean, this is literally what a third of America believes that lesbians are vampires and that gay men are sex predators. So that's one point I might add, that a third of America is prejudiced against gays and lesbians, and any argument will be acceptable to a third of America. Okay, uh, but they, they're going to want an argument that sounds uh, uh, respectable, and then there are these, these moderate types. Uh, and it seems to me the kind of argument that prevailed in the Lofton case uh, is, and the kind of argument that I think the Supreme Court would accept, say, in a marriage case, the current U.S. Supreme Court would be um, the legislature has the discretion. See, any kind of regime uh, that gives advantages is expressing a norm, okay? And it might be expressing the norm in a very mild way. And the argument would be that marriage, by encouraging uh, straight people to join and procreate, though not all of them procreate, right, 
uh, uh, that is the norm that the state is expressing that is the goal for all Americans who can achieve it. Okay? And that children are better raised, or best raised would be the argument, in a marital household where there is one mother and one father. Right? Not that homosexuals are bad for children, some of our best friends are homosexuals, but I wouldn't want my daughter to marry one would be the kind of attitude that I'm describing. Uh, and so the emphasis would be on do you want to take any risks with America's children? We have a, a tried and true method for raising children. It's heterosexual procreative marriage. And to the extent it's broken down, we should try to fix it, we should try to protect the children. And do we want to take a risk with these children's futures, either for the cultural reasons that Lee is talking about or for no promo homo reasons, which most people are not willing to articulate openly but is part of the private and closeted discourse, or, or based upon social science studies? I think we can expect to see social science studies coming out supporting this argument. And one of our friends, or quote-unquote friends, David Blankenhorn, has a book in galleys that is going to argue, I think, precisely that. Uh, and he's a social scientist. He's not a foaming-at-the-mouth bigot. Um, we've debated him. We've both debated him. And he's, I bet you, I bet you he's going to make an argument. I debated him at Columbia last fall. I bet you that's the argument. At least that's one of the arguments he's going to make. And uh, that will be what they seize upon. Okay, so we know that we have the American Academy of Pediatrics and every other reputable public health authority, child welfare association, academics, and so on. The scholarship's on our side. What uh, more important thing is the people are on our side. The way to counter this argument, you're right, it's, uh, Judith Stacy and other, other scholars, the way to counter this argument uh, is the lived lives of lesbians and gay people. So what Lee is doing in the Netherlands and what Darren Spadali and I are trying to do in, in Scandinavia is tell the stories, not just give the data, but tell the stories of lesbian and gay couples who are raising children. So, for example, we might have on the ballot in 2008 in Massachusetts uh, the uh, marriage thing, right? Uh, and I think that might be good news. Now, Evan does not think it's good news, and he, he, he might be right. Evan's usually right about things. He certainly thinks that he is. But I think there might be a silver lining to what Evan and I think is not a great thing. And that is bring it on, Mitt Romney. Bring on a referendum in 2008, at which point there are going to be three years of same-sex couples. And I would like us to produce commercials. I would like to challenge the Williams Institute to get involved in this. Not just, you know, uh, uh, st statistics, that's great. Uh, but uh, let's do fundraising to have commercials where we hone in on the uh, lesbian couple in Northampton and, say, and, and actually have a real commercial. Well, what has your marriage meant to you? Well, here's what it's meant to me. Here's what, and then here's this little kid. Well, what has it meant to you, little Evan? And little Evan says, no, no I'm not kidding, I'm not kidding. And little Evan says, says uh, my mommy's told me that the reason they got married was for me, was to express their love and commitment, not just to one another, but their joint commitment to me. And the camera comes in. <laughs> no, 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 then. Okay, I'm openly homosexual. This is what you'd expect. And then, and then the, the off the, off the uh, Darren Spadali would be a great voice for this. He has a great voice. Then the voice would say, well, well, little Evan, well, what do you think about Governor Romney who wants to take away your mommy's marriage? And is that little child's eyes well with tears? <laughs> Honestly, the issue has got to be humanized. 
it's got to be humanized. The more people who are not only out of the closet as gay and lesbian, and this is the great thing that we found in Denmark, that, they were, that, that, that the choreography of the marriage ceremony brought a lot of people out of the closet to their co-workers, their friends, their families as gays and lesbians, but more importantly brought them out of the closet as gay and lesbian couples and brought them out of the closet as responsible PTA-attending, soccer-momming parents. And, and it just gave a little bit more connection. Uh, wearing the wedding ring gave a little bit more cause for conversation at the water cooler or at the PTA meeting about, yes, uh, normalizing the idea that, that gay and lesbian couples and parents have all the same problems and a lot of the same virtues. Well, all the same virtues and a lot of the same problems as uh, uh, straight parents doing, doing this sort of stuff. Right. Okay, well, I yeah. think you were talking about the other little Evan, but Lee, do you... Yeah, I just wanted to say, it's certainly complementary, I guess, to, to the strategy Bill's espousing. I would say that we have to just shift the, the, the framing that we use of this issue away from, you know, what happens to all the children, uh, you know, of, of heterosexual couples to what happens to the, to look, the little Evans who, whose parents are not married... They they exist. They're real, and they have identifiable challenges. And so, it put the burden of proof back on the other side to say, "Well, what are you going to do about it then?" And that's something that most of them don't want to uh, don't want to address. And to amend what I said, it's also important to get the straight grandparents involved. You know, there, there are no more effective spokespeople for our causes than P flag. And so, the little Evan, as little Evan is crying, then the camera goes to the grandparents. <laughs> That straight, obviously straight, you know, husband and wife with the dress and the, and the trousers and everything. And, and they say, this is what Lois and Betsy's marriage has meant to us as grandparents. You know, that Lois has been the best thing that happened to Betsy. And we, we just revel in these children that they've brought to us, etc., etc. So, you, you know, just when you think you've hit the emotional high point with little Evan... <laughs> Then, then, then you top yourself with the straight older grandparents. Okay, and I could go on and on with strategies like this, media strategies like this, but you get the idea, obviously. Okay, why don't we open it up then? A follow-up on the point that you just made. How important do you think it is then that Rosie O'Donnell is on The View talking about her relationship with her partner and her kids all the time and in fact uh, the Republican on the show um, that is the one common element that they that they have and this goes before all this primarily female audience every day I think you hit the nail with your head yes I think that's very important I think it's more important than having like openly gay and lesbian celebrities and that sort of junk I think it's much more important to have normal, openly lesbian and gay, like just folks, doing folks things, partnership. I was actually on the Rosie O'Donnell cruise last summer. I think that's an important uh, plus. I think that's important. There were straight people on the cruise with some with their children. It was mostly lesbians and children and me. But, and, and, it, <laughs> and that's a great thing. Uh, you know, uh, publicizing... Gay and lesbian families. Now, in many ways, I feel ambivalence about this because, you know, making this postmodern media phenomenon something that is really personal and intimate. So I feel a little bit of, uh, even the schmaltzy commercial that I just gave to you, I feel a smidgen of ambivalence, though not really much. Uh, but I think that is very important. 
that that it, that it be something that is taught. I think the Lynn Cheney thing is also tremendously important. I don't know if she's a credit to her sexual orientation the way that Rosie is, but uh, it's very important that Richard Cheney, Darth Vader, Alliance of Evil, Richard Cheney, <laughs> on shows, on interviews, in vice presidential debates, it is an appropriate topic of conversation uh, that sometimes he bats away to say, well, what about your wonderful daughter who's going to give you a grandchild? Now, the most he can bring himself to say is, I love all my grandchildren, you know, including this one. Well, okay, but that's, that's like 4,000% more than you can get, uh, etc. And the more, so it's not just the churches. I quite agree with, uh, with uh, Lee and whoever. The, the, the churches are very important. Uh, but it's also within uh, conservative Republican Party, within warmongering communities, uh, all over. It's very important that we be a part of the conversation. Absolutely. Other questions? No, I've never actually watched the view, so I. Uh, don't have any views about the aesthetics of the program, etc. Yeah, uh, speaking about the impact of religion on the whole issue, what about the the preacher from the Crystal Methodist Church, uh, uh, Crystal Methadrine Church, I guess, is this haggard? And what about the bankruptcies uh, of the Catholic dioceses from the children predator priests? That how do these manage? How do you manage to distinguish? yourselves in the press because you seem there there always seems to be a kind of a tie they always seem to say that there's this this uh this this darkness coming in from the gay and lesbian community that's having this impact um how are how are you going to counter that in your commercials well first of all you do not make a commercial about the predatory priest that is not our commercial <laughs> but but secondly here's our discourse but correct me if i'm wrong uh, our discourse about this is the predatory priests and this haggard, haggard guy, it's, this is the price of the closet. Like, duh, if you have a regime of the closet, uh, particularly in our sexually liberated society, where people have an expectation of sexual satisfaction, we now believe that part of living a full life is having a sexually satisfying life at some level. In this kind of society, it is quote-unquote unnatural to expect somebody who is attracted to other men or other women, same sex, to then lead a chaste life. I mean, the, 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 uh, the price of the closet, I think, is borne by unsuspecting spouses, is borne by children, is borne by these parishioners, uh, etc. Uh, and and that's a, it's a broader campaign. It's a slightly akimbo campaign, but it's also a very important campaign. Uh, that you're not going to make progress, and we need the fact stuff on the reparative therapy movement. You know, sexual orientation is not like going to Walmart and choosing a pair of jeans, right? Uh, that it's much more complicated than that, uh, and that you're not going to make progress simply by denying. Now, that is a very hard lesson for parents and for many Americans to assimilate, and so that lesson should not be ladled on really hard, and I think we should not demonize the Roman Catholic Church for what many of us think is its hypocrisy. We should not demonize fundamentalists. And I think the gay and lesbian community has responded very maturely to the Haggard business, is that we should sympathize with somebody who himself is probably a victim of the closet. Uh, But certainly we should strike back immediately and hard 
by any kind of public effort to say, see, this is what homosexuals are. No, this is what internalized homophobia is, and this is what the closet is. Yeah, I guess I would agree that there there probably is more that we could do to, to talk about what the harms of homophobia and prejudice are. I do think, though, that to move people in the middle, we want to start pursuing some more positive arguments as well. And one of the big ideas that we work on here at the Williams Institute is that equality is good for everybody. It's good for the couples, same-sex couples in Little Evan. It's good for state governments and their budgets. It's good for heterosexual people who now know what their families, who is in their family. Um, and it's good for the state's businesses as well. So these are all arguments that, you know, there's no, there's not going to be any one magic bullet argument. I think we have to try many different kinds of strategies, but we ought to, we ought to be ready to, to be a little more proactive with our strategies than we have been, I think. Well, I'm getting the signal that that's our time, but I want to point out that in addition to a wealth of information and some brilliantly named commercials, we now have also a point that both speakers have made, and that is that in addition to the specific arguments and specific points, that the marriage discussion, the marriage debate, brings visibility, prompts conversation, and gives us the opportunity to engage people. And that is what's going to really bring us to where we want to be in the United States and around the world. So with that, I thank you, Lee. Thank you, Bill. Thank the Williams Institute. And thank you all. Amen, 11. Amen, 11. <laughs>